and ever higher into the skies via Dante's Paradiso and another Evening Under Lamplight podcast with Robert Louis Abrahamson. We're now at Canto 14, still in the sphere of the sun, but not for long. The previous canto ended with St. Thomas Aquinas' final words of warning about coming to conclusions too swiftly and getting everything dangerously wrong. The new canto begins with another non-narrative image. As usual, Dante gives us the image and only afterwards tells us what it applies to. And here it's quite a homely picture. Water in a bowl that sends ripples out from the centre or inwards from the rim, depending on where the bowl may be struck. That's the way Dante thought about the effect of Aquinas' words after he finished speaking. Aquinas, who has been speaking from the rim of that circle of saints, reverberates inward towards Dante at the centre, and then Beatrice, who has been silent for some time but now speaks, sends reverberations outwards from the centre back to the saints in the circle. Beatrice speaks up now to set out two questions she knows Dante needs to have answers to, though Dante hasn't quite become conscious of this need himself yet. The questions have to do with the resurrection of the body, which the doctrine declares will happen at the end of the world. All souls will be reunited with their risen bodies. But here's the first question. The souls now are gleaming as brightly as stars. Well, as Dante had said a few cantos ago, they're shining more brightly even than the sun, which is why he can see them here against the sun's brilliance. But when the souls are reunited with their bodies, will they, he wants to know, will they still be shining as brightly, or will the bodily flesh somehow tone down the shining? The second question follows from this. If the bodies do happen to shine as brightly then as the souls are shining now, how will their bodily eyesight be able to endure such brilliance? Won't it, won't it, won't it be too bright for their renewed human eyes? Whoa, <laughs> that question seems to set the souls spinning around in their circle again, dancing with greater joy, singing more praises for the Trinity, the one, two, three eternal lives, the three, two, one reigning forever. Then the brightest of those lights of the inner circle speaks up to reply to Beatrice's question. He speaks in a modest voice, perhaps, as Dante says, perhaps, because who can know for sure, perhaps like the voice of Gabriel when he came to marry. The speaker's identity has been debated, but I think most scholars continue to identify him as Solomon. Basically what he says is that, yes, they will retain their brightness forever, even when reunited with their bodies, and Yes, their bodies will now have such power that they will certainly be able to sustain this great splendor. But of course, as we've been seeing all along, it's not so much the specific answer to Dante's questions that matters, but the way the questions are answered, and the added information and imagery presented on the way to answering the questions. Solomon presents his answers as a succession of cause and effect. The splendor that shines through these souls now comes from the love they are burning with here in heaven. And, and that love comes from the amount of sight or vision that they have, and that vision comes from the amount of valore or merit they have earned, which in turn comes from the amount of grace they have received. 
I'll try to say more about this in a bit. Now when they are reunited with their glorified bodies, they will be complete, body and soul once again. And this completeness will be more pleasing to God than even just their glorified souls by themselves, which is the situation now. And so now we get that progression in reverse. If God is more pleased, then there will be more grace and more light, and thus a greater vision and then greater love, whose ardor will produce an even greater radiance. And so, not only will the souls still have their brightness when they're reunited with their bodies, but that brightness will be even more intense than it is now. Oh yes, and the new, hallowed bodies will be so strong that none of this brightness will ever be able to harm their eyes at all. And now, at the conclusion of the speech, all the others shout out, Amen, showing, as Dante says, their eagerness to be reunited with their bodies. And it's not just because they long for the pleasure of completion of their souls back with their flesh, but because they long for the pleasure that will also come to those whom they have loved, who will also enjoy this pleasure. And perhaps there's also the sense that they'll all be able to see each other again and enjoy an even more splendid bodily communion than they did back when they'd all been alive before. And now we get a surreal transition, very cinematographic. First, we're asked to picture the sky at dusk, when we begin to make out a few stars, or maybe not, we can't be sure. And that's how it seems to Dante, as he sees, or thinks he sees, a third ring of lights begin to take form. And then there's no doubt, those lights shine out so clearly that he, that he has to avert his eyes. Averting them from those stars, he turns to Beatrice, who shows herself so beautiful and smiling so sweetly that, that he'll always remember this. And then Dante's eyes clear, as though regaining focus after those bright lights, and, coming to his senses, he realizes that he's risen to a new level now, with just Beatrice and he, and a higher state of bliss within him. His sense that he's on a new planet is confirmed because there's no longer the clear, colorless radiance of the sun, but a reddish glow, or rather a redder-than-red glow. He's on Mars now. Dante's response is to offer up a mental holocaust, a sacrifice of burnt offering, of thanks for raising him up higher now, and then immediately comes the assurance that his sacrifice has been received because a new group of figures appears, radiant in red, and forming a cross infused deep within that sphere. We're now beyond Dante's powers to describe what he sees. All he can say is that he saw Christ on the cross. He knows we, who may also follow the cross, will forgive his inability to describe what he saw. But he can tell us that across and up and down he sees the lights moving, gleaming more intensely when they meet other lights. The movement is rapid and unceasing, like the way motes of dust move around in a ray of sunlight here on earth. And as usual, there's not just movement, but singing. And even though Dante cannot make out the words very well, he is moved by their melody and harmony and, and knows it's a hymn of praise. He can, though, make out two words, arise and conquer, 
At this, Dante is moved to a greater love than anything he has ever experienced before. But wait, Dante is suddenly concerned that we might think this feeling of greater love from seeing this might seem to slight Beatrice. But no, we needn't worry. It's not that he's found a love greater than his love for her. It's just that at this moment he's, he's not looking at her, but at these lights around him. She indeed has grown even more beautiful now that they've ascended higher. And on that high note, the canto ends. This canto obviously has two sections, the first continuing with the final questions for those on the sphere of the sun, and the second part taking place up on the planet Mars. While the questions being considered in the first part concern the soul's reunification with the body, and the new body's ability to receive the heightened experience of the glorious splendor around it, the events in the second part seem to overwhelm Dante's merely living body. He can't express what he sees here, and he can't very well comprehend what these souls are singing. But let's go back to that opening image of the ripples in the bowl of water. The image seems to address the issues I've just spoken about. How can Dante present his experience in such a way that our limited abilities can receive it? One way is to work through imagery, which can translate the abstract and indescribable into concrete terms we can at least visualize and understand to some extent. It's like an incarnation of the experience into watery, if not fleshly, form. And so what is it that we take from this image? The movement of the water towards the center and from the center back out again, a steady movement back and forth, one person initiating the movement, then the next person moving it back. It's not quite an exchange, except in the sense that, say, a tennis match is an exchange. Back and forth, reciprocation. T.S. Eliot speaks about the still point at the center, but this image proposes a different kind of center experience. Not still, but in constant response to the movement from the rim inwards. The questions Beatrice asks on behalf of Dante concern curiosity about what it will be like after the Last Judgment when the souls are rejoined to their bodies, or, to use the word we've been carrying through, when the souls are conjoined to their bodies, or even reconjoined. This is the kind of question that gave the medieval thinkers a bad reputation several centuries later. Be lowly wise, Milton wrote in his Protestant epic Paradise Lost. The angel Raphael is giving advice to Adam, telling him to concern himself with the immediate issue of how to live right here and now. Heaven is for thee too high to know what passes there, he says. In other words, don't try to be a Dante. You cannot know anything for sure about heaven, and so don't waste your time trying to figure it out. Be lowly wise, he instructs. Think only what concerns thee and thy being. Dream not to other worlds what creatures there live, in what state, condition, or degree. Or, as Alexander Pope reworded this, Be lowly wise, presume not God to scam. The proper study of mankind is man, and, and maybe we feel the same way. Who cares how bright the reunited body's soul will be, or how receptive to others' brightness? What is it to us, all this talk of the new life, ex except, I suppose, 
I suppose, to give us some hope, even some consolation. Well, I may have a bad hip now, but the time will come, I am assured, that I'll have a new and better body, with good hips, clear eyesight, and no indigestion after a dairy meal. Yes, a consolation in a way, but not of much use for every day. So the question is whether Solomon's answer has any relevance for us today. Well, as I said, the significant part of the discourse can come not in the exact answer, but in what is told us as we get the answer. So we should attend for a minute to that progression Solomon gives us. We start with a movement of grace, which spurs us to do good work, and then increases our sight or insight, which then increases our love, and, and then we shine the brighter. A nice little dance, <laughs> but what does it mean? Can we translate that into images that will feel more relevant? Well, here's an example of how this might play out. A, a pretty simple, not to say stupid example, but it may help. The other day I was going to make myself a cup of tea, my mind occupied with other things. But then something suddenly prompted me to ask my wife if she would also like some tea. As I say, I was preoccupied, but this thought just came to me. Now that's pretty much what we mean by an act of grace. Some nudge in a direction we hadn't thought of taking. A nudge, of course, promoting love rather than hate. And then it's up to me whether I assent or not. Yes, I assented, and asked if she wanted tea, and she said yes. And there was my good deed, my mitzvah, my valore. Now, what comes next? That valore, or merit, or goodness, leads to greater sight. And yes, picture this. Agreeing to make the tea for my wife helped open my eyes, just a little bit since it wasn't a big moment, but I was able to see at that moment that she was not just some other presence in the house, but someone with a need, someone I could communicate with, share with. By that little bit, it opened my eyes further into our relationship. And what did that bring? Greater love, of course. N not, not some gushy passion, but a deeper sense of that community we've been seeing in Dante. The two of us, different but come together, wishing each other well, sharing each for the good of the other. And the final step, that makes us glow more brightly. No, not in some science fiction radiation mishap, but just perhaps to walk with a little more bounce or with a brighter smile. Remember how often Beatrice communicates her love through her smile. Does this bring Solomon's message to life for us? Is this how we answer to Milton and Pope that Dante is being lowly wise? And by the way, what do we make of Dante's remark that Solomon's voice was modest, perhaps like Gabriel's voice to Mary at the Annunciation? If his voice was notable for its modesty, does that imply that the voices of Aquinas and Bonaventure were not especially modest? For they were speaking in praise of people, Aquinas in praise of Francis, Bonaventure in praise of Dominic. Modesty might not be the appropriate tone for this. But if you're talking about this deep dance from grace to brightness, maybe you do need to be a little modest. It's not our doing, but ultimately the work of grace, which initiated it, 
just as Gabriel announced that it was Grace initiating the chain of events that would begin with Mary's pregnancy and move through the Incarnation to the ultimate expression of ardent love and glory, a chain of events we can speak of only with humble voices. And then we come to a new planet, Mars. Of course Dante knows it's the red planet, the redness reminding us of the warlike martial associations of Mars. But the blood red can also remind us of our bloodline, and in the next canto, Dante's personal history, as seen throughout the Divine Comedy, begins to come to a climax when his own ancestor comes forward to speak with him. And the Red Cross here, a military emblem as well as religious, but not a static sign, since the cross Dante sees is seemingly crawling with lights moving around in it. It's all beyond his comprehension. He has a vision of Christ on the cross, but, understandably, he can't find a way to express what he's seeing here, nor can he grasp the words the souls here are singing, except those two words, Risurgi and Vinci, Arise and Conquer, a call to arms, perhaps a more active counterpart to Dominic, who fought enemies with words, not actions. Dante's first action when he arrives is, as he says, to offer a sacrifice of praise for having been raised this high and being given this even more magnificent experience. Should we stop and consider what a sacrifice is all about? A sacrifice is the act of giving back something you have received, and the giving back transforms the thing and the people involved. A holocaust, a word Dante uses here, is technically a burnt offering sacrificed to God. The animals God has given us returned in part to him in gratitude. Dante's holocaust, of course, is symbolic in his head. A holocaust is another act of reciprocity, and in doing this, we make the whole thing sacred, that is, special and set apart from other parts of life. Sacrifice, after all, means basically to make something sacred. And so Dante here is not just accepting this new experience on the next planet, but he's consciously dedicating it to holiness. It's not just any old event, not just something to be taken for granted. Let's imagine the scene if we can. Solomon has just said that the risen bodies will have eyes strong enough to endure the splendor around them, but Dante's mortal eyes cannot take in the added splendor of that new third ring of lights. And so what do you do in your puzzlement and incapacity? You turn to your divine guide, Beatrice, whose loving smile you can endure. And in fact, that smile restores his eyesight just in time to notice he's now in a new surrounding. The passage has taken place without his realizing it, or, or are realizing it either. And in that moment of realization comes Dante's sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, hallowing it all. And as a kind of response to this sacrifice comes a greater grace, the presence of these new souls, dancing in the shape of the cross, and then a vision of Christ there. But now, but now we've reached the limits of Dante's human abilities, and we get only a partial account of what happens next. All he can really say is that it was so splendid that it captured his whole attention and drew it away from Beatrice, if, if only for a moment. And so 
here we are in this new hallowed place. What's going to happen here? Well, I've already spoken about Dante's ancestor who comes to speak to him here. We'll meet him in the next canto. See you there.